0: Peter, I think in the business context, the story teaches. We learn how to do things. How did that person face that situation? How did they handle that challenge? Boy, that was a tough one. What did they do? The story resonates with us in such a way that that it really reaches in and it really appeals to us.
1: Welcome to Improv is No Joke Podcast, where it is all about becoming a more effective communicator by embracing the principles of improvisation. Your host is Peter Margaritas, the man whose name is pronounced like a cocktail but spelled like an inflammation. Peter is the self proclaimed chief edutainment officer of his business, the Accidental Accountant. Peter's goal is to provide you with thought provoking interviews with business leaders. So you can become an effective improviser, which will lead to building stronger relationships with clients, customers, colleagues, and even your family. So let's start the show. Welcome to episode 85. And today my guest is Merle Heckman, who is a manager of organizational development at Regal Power Transmission Solutions. Merle understands the power of storytelling because his doctoral dissertation is titled Intentional Storytelling, a Potential Tool for Retention and Application in Business. So obviously our conversation is going to focus on why storytelling is needed in all aspects of business today. Before we get to the interview, I have a question for you. Would you like to operate clearly in chaotic situations and learn how to focus on the things that you can control and not worry about the things that you can't control? If so, then consider purchasing my book, Improv is No Joke, using improvisation to create positive results and in leadership in life for only $14.99. Here's a review from an Amazon customer. Yes, and he did a great job opening my eyes and mind to concepts. I'm an ex-accountant who also did a short-lived stint as a professional actor. When I looked at the book, I was curious on what could Mr. Margaritas tell me about improv or accounting. Yes, and he did a great job opening my eyes and mind to concepts I'd long forgotten about, i.e., listening to other people, being creative, and accepting positivity. His examples are real and grounded, and his use of humor is refreshing. I read the book cover to cover in one sitting because he kept me enthralled on his stories and explanations. I highly recommend his book if you're looking for some fresh ideas to open your business processes. And even if you're not looking, you'll be pleasantly surprised by his experience and approach. Thank you very much, Mr. Amazon customer. Obviously, the book can be purchased on Amazon. But if you'd like a personalized signed copy, go to my website, petermargaritas.com. And that's M-A-R-G-A-R-I-T-I-S. And click on the improv is no joke available now graphic to purchase. And the shipping is free. You can also purchase my audiobook from my website for the same price of $14.99. A professional speaker's biggest challenge is following up with their audience to continue to provide value-added tools and techniques. This podcast is one way that I use to deliver those tools and techniques. The other way is through my social media platforms, which are Facebook. Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Please feel free in connecting with me on one or all of these social media platforms, and you can subscribe to my monthly newsletter by going to my website, petermargaritas.com, and clicking the contact drop-down button on the menu bar of my homepage. Well, with that said, now let's get to the interview with Merle. Merle, thank you for taking time. I know you're a very busy man. You got a very big job. But I appreciate you taking time to spend with me on my podcast today.
0: Hey, Peter, it's a treat. I've been listening to the podcast, learned a lot of good things from your folks, so it's good stuff.
1: Well, thank you very much. And just so everybody knows, Merle and I go back a couple of years. He was attending the indie. Indy Sherm Conference and uh, Jennifer Elder and I had a, a a course that we were offering that day, and, and I was uh, manning the camera for, for Jennifer and getting some footage. And you had to leave early, and I gave you my business card, and we've just kind of kept in contact over the last couple of years this way. Yeah,
0: that's sure enough, Pete. And so read the book, and then just uh, kind of watch what was going on.
1: Why don't you share with the audience your background? What do you do? And and we'll we'll have a conversation from there,
0: Peter. I work presently for a manufacturing company called Regal Beloit uh, here in Florence, Kentucky. I've been the manager of organizational development for about nine years, and so a part of that is I do a lot of training, a lot of development, a lot of leadership coaching uh, here for my company and my organization. I've always been in the uh, human resource at, human resource realm of work. Before this, I was a plant HR manager for a couple of years. Before that, I was involved in Government Housing Authority, Northwest Indiana, for a couple of years in HR. Prior to that, I worked for a transportation company for about eight and a half years, some operations, and got into HR. And before that, I did nonprofit, And so I've been very fortunate to have a variety of different things. Um, for the last, I guess now, 12 years, I've taught as an adjunct faculty member at a variety of different universities. Then I do a lot of work for the Dale Carnegie Organization on the side also of teaching their various classes, uh, both live and online. So a lot of diversity of different things I've gotten to do.
1: Yeah, it's pretty cool. I, I, I remember you telling me that you were adjunct professor in teaching. And, and, but you also got your, 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 your doctoral degree in uh, educational leadership from Northern Kentucky University, correct?
0: Yes, I got that about three years ago, and just felt like I'd gone through a lot of the other educational aspects, and said, "Hey, let's go for the <laughs> for the uh, other opportunity there to see what doors it opens up, and mainly just to get stretched and to learn a little bit more."
1: So, but may I ask what what was your dissertation on?
0: It was actually on the idea of using storytelling in business, what? and to see if story. Yeah, I wanted to see because uh, Peter. I would walk out of meetings and we're an enge- we're engineering driven. Okay. We're manufacturing. And I would walk out of meetings and, and I'm not a I'm not a dodo. I'm a fairly <laughs> intelligent guy, but I'd listen to some of the presentations that were made and I just shake my head and say, I don't know what was said there. <laughs> and I'd walk out the hallway and walk beside people and say, Do you understand what was going on there? And I, I heard a lot of people unfortunately shake their head and just say, No, I don't I don't know I have a clue what was going on there. So I said, "What can we do about that?" Uh, so that's what
1: prompted it. Interesting. So, um, so you weren't versed in the language of engineering. That's that's the kind of that's that's
0: my breed of people that I hang around with. <laughs>
1: that's it it, it. it is, and that's what I when I when I talk about this, and we've talked. You know, that I'm in the process of writing the book. When I have a group of, of accountants in my audience, I, I ask this question: How many of you speak a foreign language? And I get a few hands <laughs> raised. I said, well, let me rephrase that. How many of you speak the foreign language of business called accounting? Ooh, and then, what and, you get there? And, and then they all start laughing, and they all raise their hand. And I go, folks, you speak a foreign language. Because outside of the accounting department, the sales, the HR, the other, they have no idea what you're talking about. And even if you say it louder, they're not going to understand it better. And. and I think they begin to realize that they they do speak a foreign language, just as engineers speak a foreign language, and architects, and so on and so forth. Well, in some ways,
0: Peter, we all speak foreign languages because we get locked into our fields, and we know acronyms, and we know details, but probably for engineering and finance people, they face it even more, a greater challenge. Right. Yeah, they do.
1: So uh, and speak uh, okay, we said acronyms. SHRM stands for Society for Human Resource Management, correct? Yeah, we better clear that one up bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, 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 I start throwing acronyms around like crazy. So so tell me about the, tell me about your dissertation. Tell me about your research. This is this is fascinating. And and just so the audience knows, we've known each other um like I said for a couple of years, but it wasn't until late last week that I learned about this. About your doctoral yes,
0: it- yeah, I don't float that out to everybody. I mean, you know, you're just normal morals. That's what you are. <laughs> but, but but one of the great parts of the doctoral program in Northern Kentucky University, Peter, is they believed in something they called action research. So we did, we did research, but they wanted to see it in practice. They wanted us to have dissertations that could be plugged into workplaces and to be a benefit to people, not just theoretically lost in the dark hole. So we came up with, with an idea to do an experiment here at our location. This was the divisional corporate office for our company. Every month, the president of our organization would hold a one-hour meeting, and the managerial staff was invited to come to it. About the first 20 minutes, the president would speak about the numbers for the previous month. He'd give an update of different things then he would invite somebody on his staff to make a presentation about their particular area of specialty. Again, just to try to educate people, get people in in gear. I approached the, the vice president of human resources and then approached the president and said, here's my proposal and explained to them how I believe that storytelling could help us as an organization and then i had this opportunity through through the educational process to to work towards the degree so what we did was we set it up where the the for 4 months in a row one time a month the 60 65 people would come into the meeting and the first meeting would be business as usual be normal the third month business as usual no changes but the second and the fourth month the president, and then I was given access to whoever is going to be the speaker. I worked with them, coached them, gave some, them some ideas, or gave them suggestions. How could you incorporate things like a story, a word picture, an analogy? How could we use that and see you present something like that in your presentation? Um. And so it, it, I think it was a real educational process for folks. I'll say a bit about that later on too. But so that's the way we did. So the very first time that we did this, Peter, I explained to the people in the audience, "Hey, I'm working on an advanced degree. We're doing some study about communication. You'll be receiving some emails with surveys from me, because Peter, I didn't want to tip the hand that oh, we're going to do stories. We're going to see if it's different." I want us to try to keep the information clear. So to follow up, we would send an email two days after the presentation and two weeks after the presentation. So these folks would respond and they were asked questions like, what do you remember? What stood out to you? And sometimes what suggestions would you give to the, the presenter to make it better? And the one that went out two weeks later, we would ask them, Peter, if they were able to take something they heard and put it into practice and have some action, application to it. First month was normal. Second month, again, the president came out with this great analogy of where he used Thanksgiving dinner and talked about Uh, I'm not sure how I remember did did it, but he uh, he explained trade working capital through the use of the Thanksgiving dinner, which was yeah. And but again, the power of analogies. Yes, the power of the way to look at things in a language that people could understand. Third month was the same. Fourth month, he again gave an analogy. The speaker gave the analogy. And Peter, we kept looking at these surveys and watching them. When all the surveys were in, we studied them real closely. And here were a couple of things that really stood out to us. First of all, we saw that the amount of activity and application uh, went up a great deal. We found that people were able to put into practice two and a half times more when there were stories, compared to just the regular dry presentations, if you please, they were able to take things they had learned and put them into action two and a half more times through the times when they heard stories. Wow. I would say it's because they could remember it, mm-hmm. understand it, and grasp it even better. Another key note that we observed, Peter, was the fact that uh, we, sit, we would ask people, well, write what you Remember? Well, they, the first, from the first time to the second time, people wrote double the amount of what they remembered from the presentation. From the third time to the fourth time, they wrote 81% more. Now, we could debate exactly what that means, but one thing I would say is that people walked away when they heard stories they remembered so much more and could recount it two weeks later. And Peter, that, that's exciting stuff. Yes, if it stories is. stories could do that.
1: Yes, it is. Very, yeah. very, very exciting stuff.
0: Um, I believe that many people in business are somewhat terrified of stories. They look at stories as being, ah, oh, come on, we're well-educated people, and and they believe that Uh, maybe you're pretty weak to use stories and to talk about them. But in reality, what we want to do is get things across to people where they can remember them and they stick with them. Um, There's a statement that we use a lot here at my workplace to try to remind people about this, Peter, and it goes like this. People will remember your stories long after they forget your slides. And I believe in that. I believe that. I do too. Um, I think there's some different. I, I think there's just something about stories that we've overlooked. A part of it is, Peter. I think we 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 fail to realize that we tend to be story driven as human beings. Yes, we are. For those folks that go to movies, <laughs> what's a movie? It's a story, and then the whole science of what makes the movie and the story so good is an element that can even be used as we tell stories.
1: So let me ask you this question. How would, how is, since there's a, some fear or whatever about so? how do you define story to the business community? It's not, it's not once upon a time, and it's not making yeah. stuff up, but how, how did you define that in your dissertation?
0: Well, we were very careful to say that a story, you're right, because people hear story and they think, oh, nursery rhymes, right. Right. or I'm just lying and making up a story. Right. Um, I very clearly told our people, it could be, I even use the term a homespun illustration, like the Thanksgiving dinner, but we're not talking about made up things, we're not talking about lying We're talking about sometimes taking real-life events and using them or real-life situations, and how can you draw similarities with the truth that you're trying to give to reinforce it? Peter, you know, as I told you, I teach a lot for the Dale Carnegie Organization. Right. And I I learned a lot uh, about facilitating, not just lecturing, but facilitating through the Dale Carnegie Organization. And even though Carnegie lived a long time ago, he used he had a book about public speaking. And if you ever read the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, you'll see it's filled with stories and illustrations to represent the people principles he taught. And Carnegie said one time, I have thirty human relation principles. I could have put those in about three pages. But I used the other two hundred and forty pages of the book. <laughs> of real-life stories and real-life situations to let people see and hear and understand and illuminate them even better. Peter, I think in the business context, the story teaches. We learn how to do things. How did that person face that situation? How did they handle that challenge? Boy, that was a tough one. What did they do? The story resonates with us in such a way that, that it really reaches in and it really appeals to us.
1: It's, it's putting things in context that everybody can understand and taking out the, the technical jargon, the buzzwords and stuff. It's just, Like you said, everybody's sat down for a Thanksgiving dinner. Everybody's had an experience yes. during a Thanksgiving dinner. So everybody uh, everybody understands that. I, I, I did something in, in Arizona some years ago where it was a highly technical topic called consolidations of VIEs, variable interest entities. I'm not going to bore you with the details, but basically this is what brought Enron down and these uh, off-balance sheet items. And the standard setters, the county standard setters, wanted to you know, have them consolidate onto the balance sheet. And the night before, I, I'm looking at my slides, going, oh my God, I'm going to put everybody to sleep. And I just said, yeah. what's the lowest common denominator? What are these guys trying to do? And I said, well, they're trying to move something from here into here. They're trying to move something in that this place doesn't want it. And I came up with this idea. And what I did was, so what would ever, I asked a question before I got into the material. I said, so just by the show of hands, how many of you all are married? And I got these real funny looks. Yeah. There's like 200 people in the room. All these hands went up. I said, okay, uh, how many of you have a mother-in-law? And the hand stayed up. I said, I want you to think of your mother-in-law as a variable interest entity, and your spouse wants their mother to move in, consolidate into your household, a.k.a. balance sheet.
0: And, and Yeah, how'd that go over?
1: Everybody went from, oh, my God, I'm going to do the conference prayer and look at my phone, to holy cow, what? And it was a home run. And when I do go back to Arizona, the people that were in that audience said, go, you're the mother-in-law guy, right? Yes. And I know I've got a really cool last name, but I love it when I somebody says, you're the mother-in-law guy, because they got it.
0: Well, Peter, think about that. I mean, there are some even great business books out there of an, shall we say, an allegorical story form. Take the book Fish, about Pike's Fish Market. Yes. Up in Seattle, and yep. the lessons teach about about that. Probably the best one I can come up with is the book Who Moved My Cheese. Yes. Because what that guy did was he took kind of a strange, simple story. Um, When I worked for the trucking company, the book had just come out. And the owner of the company had been at a conference, gotten the book. He called me to his office when he came back. He said, I got an assignment for you. I said, sure, what's that? And he took the book and he tossed it to me. And he said, read this book, figure out how to teach it to our people, because we're always going to go through change. Now, Peter, um, I'm sure a lot of the listeners have listened to Who Moved My Cheese, but I always say it's a great guidebook, and there's three reasons. It's a great guidebook because, number one, it's got about 100 pages. That's us for us guys. Yeah. Number two, it's got big print. Another winner (laughs) for us guys. And, Peter, you want to dare guess what the third one was? (laughs) Go ahead. (laughs) It's got got some pictures. that's it. So it's a great guidebook. Yeah. But I've told that story at various, I don't do it anymore because it's it's kind of been overused. But I've got locations where I was at eight years ago, and I'll go in, and as I walk in the door, people will see me and say, hey, you're the cheese guy, (laughs) just like you were the mother-in-law guy. (laughs) And they'll still say, my cheese is being moved. They'll laugh about it. Uh, That's
1: cool. It's all
0: through the story.
1: It's all through the story. It's all
0: through the story. Um, And, and Peter, I think all of us ought to have a concern about if we can say something that resonates with people. We don't want to just stand up in front of a group of people and have them endure it and get out the door and forget everything. I have a book in my library that I would strongly encourage uh, the listeners to take a look at. It's called Made to Stick. It's written by two brothers, Chip and Dan Heath. Uh, one of them is at Stanford. One of them is at Duke University, and they've done a lot of practical research. And the book made to stick. I referred to it a couple of times in the dissertation. Okay. It has to do with why do good. I- how do you get ideas to stick with people? Hmm. How do you get them, to stick with them? As a matter of fact, when you see the book, the cover is intriguing. It's an orange-colored book. Has made to stick but it looks like a piece of duct tape on the front. It's not real <laughs> duct tape, but it looks like it. In Made to Stick, there is an excellent story that they give that explains why people struggle with and probably why engineers and accounting people struggle. And the, the short story is entitled Tappers and Listeners. Tappers? Tappers like you tap on the table.
1: Okay, 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 okay.
0: Yeah, tappers, tappers and listeners. A lady was working on her dissertation from Stanford University. It was in a dissertation in communication. And she used as her resource this experimental game. She asked for volunteer, two groups of volunteers. And Peter, one group would volunteer to be tapped. Like, again, tapping on my desk here. Okay. The tappers were given a list of songs, commonly known songs, that basically everybody would know. Songs like Twinkle, Twinkle Little Star, Happy Birthday, Jingle Bells, Mary Had a Little Lamb. All those songs we learned when we were kids. Yeah. And the tappers had the responsibility to practice taking their song and tapping it, the notes to it, on a desk. That's what they were supposed to do. Okay. After they had time, had time to practice, then they were going to bring in a second separate group of volunteers called listeners. And the listener was going to sit across the desk from the tapper, and the tapper would tap the song And the listener would have to guess what it was. Uh, Now, Peter, before the the tappers had practiced, but the listeners hadn't come yet, and they asked the group of tappers, what percentage of times do you think people will recognize the song? And actually about, they said 52%. We think 52% of the time people will recognize the song. They brought the people in. A hundred and twenty-five songs were tapped. Wow. And the number of songs that were recognized were three. What? what? Three? And, yeah. And the tappers said, Oh man, there's no way, no way. That type of thing. But Peter, and when I teach this to groups of people, I will sometimes say, okay. Let me tap a song out. Let's see which, if you can guess it. I said it'll be one every one of you'll know. So I'll tap the song on my desk, and I'll say, "Okay, guess what it is? Guess what it is?" And I'd say ninety nine percent of the time nobody can guess it. And what I've done is I have t- typed the Star Spangled Banner. Okay. And I said, "Wait a minute! You you didn't you couldn't figure out the Star Spangled Banner?" And I say that uh, facetiously. Yeah. But if you think about it, Peter, all they're hearing is random taps. In my mind, I hear the orchestra before the ball game. Right. In my mind, I hear the singer singing the national anthem before the game. I hear all of that in my mind, and then I tap and I fill it in my mind, but they don't get that. All they hear is these random taps. And the lesson that lady drove home through her dissertation, Peter, is that we have to be careful that we just don't have it in our minds, but don't get it out to the people in a way they can understand it. Wow. Peter, she even you she coined wow. the term the curse of knowledge. The curse of knowledge. Said, the curse of knowledge. She said many of us When we learn something, all of a sudden, we think everybody else knows (laughs) it. And Peter, I've been in courses, and I've had to to, uh, steer away from speakers. They were financial people in our organization, and they were told, hey, teach finances for non-financial people. And I will tell you, some of our best people that work in the financial department would get up and they'd rattle the terms that they live with day by day by day, and you'd look around the crowd and it's just a gaze. They can't. They're they're glared. That's what it is. The glare on their eyes, because the people don't so well.
1: It's the curse of knowledge. I like that. I, I, I like that analogy. The curse of knowledge. It's
0: a great one. It Papers is. and listeners, and sometimes. To my friends that have heard me teach that, I will say, so I'll teach something or they'll teach something, and then we'll realize it didn't go over very well, <laughs> and we'll say to each other afterwards, hmm, <laughs> I was tapping today, but I didn't do much. <laughs> hey, Peter, one other thought on that, just to wrap up that idea. After we set the stage for that, talk about other lessons that she gave. I say to folks, let's imagine that we went out. It's a sunny, warm afternoon. We walk out as a group to a, a picnic, a park where there are picnic tables and pavilions up. And you look over and you see a table. There's a bunch of gifts on the tables, streamers, blooms, a bunch of little kids singing, standing around, singing, having fun. And all of a sudden, you hear this song. And I tap out, happy birthday. Mm -hmm. I said, what have I just tapped? And they said, oh, happy birthday. (laughs) I said, yep, that's it. I said, I have to set the context. Mm -hmm. I have to set the situation to where you can see it in your mind, and then you can grasp it. And, Peter, that's the great thing about stories. They help us set the stage. They help us put in a context. That people can get and understand. It's not just spur of the moment stories, although sometimes you get them, but stories and illustrations and analogies ought to really be thought out ahead of time and ought to be considered for which would be the best and the most appropriate story to use in the situation. And that's what's got real benefit to it, Peter. That's what got great benefit to it.
1: Yes, and, and when I talk about financial storytelling with, with my audience, I, I tell them write it down when you come across a story. And and, and so, wh- how I've kind of helped my audience is so when I'm talking about story, you know, all good stories have a hero and a villain, right? Yeah. All great stories got a hero and a villain. And then the villain gets as Bill Staten uh talks about stories, says, you know, you you run the villain up the tree and you throw rocks at him. And they're looking at me like, what are you talking about? I said, Well, let me just change. it. Instead of hero and villain, every good story has a a, a challenge, a problem. And, yes. and every good story has that hero a hero. That hero oh that hero solves that problem. So if you look at storytelling on how you solve a problem, because that problem is the villain, you've got more stories in front of you than you really know about, and you got to write them down.
0: That's it. And that it's looking for day-by-day day things we do or work situations. Peter, I believe the best stories are ones that come from our lives. Yes. The best stories are the ones that we have lived. The second best stories are the ones we have observed in other people around us. And we've seen different situations and see how they handled it. And, and we're, we don't ever want to you know, do something that hurts the being anonymous. We're not trying to say something about somebody that shouldn't be said. Right. Right. But there are some times people at our organization step up and they do some great things. Uh and, and if we get permission, we could tell those stories. You don't even have to tell the person's name, but say, this is how they did it. This is what they did. Those make examples. The third best are ones that we read about in books that are true to life. Those are the best ones. You know, people will talk about what Churchill did this, or Abraham Lincoln did this, or that person. That's the resource of stories. But far and above, Peter, there are so many stories of our own personal lives that affect people can inspire can educate can guide can teach so we don't want to just quickly say oh i don't have any stories that's so far from being accurate it it just they need to address them and they do look at them and peter what stories you think about it when you went back there to arizona where you taught and you told your mother-in-law story The next time you got to speak, there probably was some pressure to say, oh, man, now they're expecting something. I guess I need to come up with something else. Did you feel a little pressure? Uh, Yes. Yeah, I do. But all of a sudden, you get the reputation of people who can tell a story, and people say, man, I want to listen to that lady. I want to listen to that man again because they tell something to hold my attention, and they even let me laugh a little bit. We had one of our presenters who was not really known for having a great deal of of, of uh, charisma, if you please. Okay. Very knowledgeable. When that person turns to storytelling, it was like people were writing to me and said, oh, my God, can you help this person do that every time, because when they do that, I learn, I understand, and it is great. And think for the folks in your audience, Peter, Hmm. if Hmm. our folks could hear this, and that could be a way we'd be known, we'd be much more effective, much more respected, and quite honestly, we'd enjoy it even more. We'd enjoy it even more.
1: Yes, and I think the challenge out there is it takes a lot of work. To, to, craft, um, to craft that story, to think about, to put that analogy together. And, and I think some people, uh, because of maybe workloads, because of what's going on in their lives, whatever, choose to not do that because of the amount of work. It,
0: it is. And Peter, um, I have to give credit to my family. Um, as you know, my wife and I have seven children. Now, they're, they're all now ranging from 37 years old down to 20 years old. But guess what The as part of the dinner table conversation was as my kids were growing up? Dad was practicing a story. <laughs> hey, I got a story I want to tell you all. Let's see what you think. And I'd get critiqued by the tough crowd, right? The teenagers <laughs> who would say, I don't know. But I'd practice. I'd practice telling it to the cat. I'd practice it and... That idea that the, the greatness is not in the performance. The greatness is in the preparation. preparation. Ding yeah. Ding. I, I've stood in front of the TV in hotels and practiced what I was going to say. Just
1: practicing. The worrying of it all. Practice? We're talking about practice? We're not talking about the oh, game. Yeah. We're there you about go. practice? <laughs> Little <Allen> Iverson, right? <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's, I mean, it, it is, tough, but you know, it's, it works. And, and, it and I, and like I said, there's stories everywhere. And, and what I've learned, so my wife was the f- first one to get me to realize that I spoke a foreign language. Now she she's not an accountant; she managed a, a, a general manager for Macy's department store for many years. And when I was doing when I was in public accounting it was early on in our, our, our marriage, and even through that, you know, how was your day? And I would go immediately into accounting speak, and, right. and she'd go, but "What? Quit talking." Greek, Chinese, Japanese to me. Tell me what you did. And I struggled at first, but then she just, and I just kept finding a way to make that connection. And then I didn't realize it at that point in time. And then as a member of the National Speakers Association, being exposed to some of the best storytellers out there, I began to realize Oh, there's, there's stories everywhere. We just have to write them down and come back and, and, and catalog them and craft them and, and, because analogies and, and these things can work in so many great ways to, to, to make that connection. And I also learned that when we deliver a story, if we want to make it stick, all stories, there's emotion. There's some type of emotion. Whether yeah. whether it's sadness, happiness, anger, uh, laughter, uh, that and that's an emotionally charged event. And the more that we can add those in to our presentation, the more the information will stick, as you have demonstrated through your dissertation and, and teaching the story and these stories stick and, and the, the retention rate dramatically increases. And that's really what we're in the business to do, increase retention, right? Um, Peter, we in business...
0: Are terrified of the E word, emotion, um, but it has such power to open things up. John, uh, um, Peter, have you ever heard a speaker by the name of John Maxwell?
1: Yes.
0: Okay, and maybe some folks in your audience have. I would strongly encourage people to go on YouTube and watch John Maxwell. Um, my wife heard him speak at a convention, and, and Maxwell speaks around the world. He speaks a lot, very well-known as an expert in writing leadership books. and But he spoke to a convention she was at that had about 20,000 people several years ago. And she understands the idea of what we watch for in speakers. And Maxwell laid it out real carefully. He says, you know, I've got three main things I'm going to talk about today. He alluded to them, and then he said, hey, here's the first idea I want to leave with you. He told it, he laid the foundation, and then Peter, he went in and started telling a story. And it was a story that got people kind of laughing. It had, like you said, the ups and the downs of a person, and people started laughed and the, the emotions opened up. If you can only see my hands right now, open <laughs> up a person. My hands are spread open yeah. like that. And then he came back and drilled that first point really clear again. Number two, lay the foundation. Different story, different situation. Got some laughter, got some a bit of a sadness, but use that. It's such an effective tool to plant the seed in. And I want to be real clear, Peter. When I talk about stories, I'm not talking about funny jokes. I rarely tell a funny joke. <laughs> well, <laughs> if, uh, if I tell a joke in public, it's not funny, right? So <laughs> I don't do it. But just the homespun, the way you tell things you've experienced and you live. Great example. We're not talking about being a jokester, although there is lightheartedness, especially when we poke some fun at ourselves. But they will, Peter. People will rally, and they will love to hear you hear a person speak that can make truth presented via a story. It's a powerful tool.
1: It is, and, and I was going to say that um, there's a difference between jokes and humor.
0: Exactly, exactly. We never want to say anything at the expense of anybody else, and I think that may be part of what, oh, people are stories. and think, oh, you just got to be comedy. And that's not what we're doing at all. There's, there's good place for well t- good taste of humor, but never at the expense of somebody.
1: So the, the example that I give is a joke is something like a priest, a rabbi, and Bill Clinton walk into a bar. You you you've offended somebody already just by saying that. Yeah, humor is in the sense of I'm I'm talking to a group about parenting, and I would say I would say something. You know what? The, my son who's who, who's 17 years old. I, I got the best. I got the, the, the. I mean, the best compliment he's ever given to me. And he told me the other day that I was a buzzkill. <laughs> I don't know what that is. That's, I said, that's like getting an exceeds uh, uh, expectations on a performance (laughs) review. That's humor (laughs) versus the joke. Right. Because you're telling real life. That was a real story. And people admire that. Yeah. To your point, there's three areas to come from. Uh, from from home, from family, from life, and and I was raised in a Greek American household. There's stories everywhere, just you know, oh, in, man. In, in that background. And, and but I I also agree that you know telling the story, uh, what Churchill said or, or what Kennedy said or, or, or Jobs, and, and bringing those in also has a lot of power and and, and helping with that retention with that, with that increasing that, that retention level. And, you know, we're in the information exchange business. When, when, when you're in front of an audience, we're exchanging information. And if we are tappers, the, the likelihood that maybe 10% might remain when they leave the room. Yeah. The goal is to increase that. And, and we can increase that through story, through, through the examples that you have given.
0: Um, Peter, too many, there's too much there's not too much. There's so much information. The story will distinguish us as being different. It will make us be unique. And the goal is not to plop out 20 different stats of information. The goal is to give people something they can walk away with and grasp and benefit from. And, and that's the, the the beauty of it. I, I learned from other people. I see how they did. I see how they faced it. I learned those stories, and it's like that's got such a refreshment to it, to the people that hear us. And so for folks that aren't used to this, I challenge them to just be a bit daring and to take the risk and and work and craft a story and and to try it and just see how it goes. And and it's a great opportunity. It's a truly great opportunity. It
1: is. It is when you say you know you watch and I and I ask audiences do they watch TED talks because yes. a lot of TED talk is a very technical information but delivered through story which is engaging which is, with with, with this humor in it and uh, so, uh, um the gentleman number one download uh, millions of millions of download Ken Robinson. Uh, talk, exactly Talked about how schools were killed in creativity And he starts out with a story about his child um, Watch watch a TED talk Watch it for the for the content first But then go back and watch it again And see how they're weaving story in with the data With the technical side of it
0: uh, You know, another aspect that goes along with that, Peter Is you think about it, We often hear people live, talk about how we live in a world of screens Um, Young people are used to looking at screens. Us as adults look at screens all day long. They're well-crafted. They're flashy. We watch TV. We watch theater. And we get this screen and this amazing effect that's on the screen. And then all of a sudden, we come into an auditorium or meeting room, and the speaker is showing blah PowerPoint (laughs) that's not got lines everywhere (laughs) everywhere. and that we can't sometimes see or can't understand, and we speak in a monotone voice, and we wonder why we can't hold people's attention. As a presenter, we have to be better today than we've ever been because we have competition like we've never had before. Exa- and that's big time.
1: Exactly. Um, and, you know, I, I've watched how I've evolved over the years uh, from way back in the day. Anymore, I've got one slide. A picture, and a and basically just one thought, few words, and then it's a conversation around that piece. Uh, and if I can enhance it through story, but we we tend to put go if, if well, those of you listening go out of YouTube and watch Death by PowerPoint. Oh man, just that's what hey, you don't want to do.
0: Yeah, hey Peter, um, and this is not. Uh, used to work for Emerson. Okay, they were a Fortune 120 company. And during the time we were at Emerson, I helped write a program called um, Safety Leadership Skill. And we, it was an eight-hour program where we wanted to teach people not the nuts and bolts of safety, but we wanted to teach supervisors how you encourage people to be safe, how you encourage safe lifestyle, and all those things. And that presentation, had for eight hours, had 48 slides. And most <laughs> of those were pictures or big words. So we we would laugh because when people, when we started rolling the program out, uh, people would say, 48 slides, well, that's good for the first 45 minutes. What are you (laughs) going to do the rest of the time? And it was all facilitation. It was stories. It was illustrations. I mean, that program went around the world. 25,000 people got trained in it simply because people said, wow, this is refreshing, this is different. We're not glued to the PowerPoint. The, the message is the speaker. We as speakers are the message. PowerPoint's just a quick supplement. That's what it should be.
1: Yeah, it's an aid, not it's an aid, but we use it as a crutch in, in so many, so many spot ways. On. Spot on. Spot we we, spot we on. we've abused we've abused PowerPoint. But I also found that that we've trained the audience to expect PowerPoint. And I, I, I did a keynote a few years ago, and I wasn't going to use PowerPoint. It was just all through memory through story. And, and I was watching the crowd, and they were a little confused. Like, yeah, I got, I, I, where, where's the... Well, there's no slides. It's just your title slide up there, and I think that I, I actually I I got okay reviews, not what I was expecting. And I was talking to some folks about it, and they said, Pete, your your audience CPAs are expecting slides. Why don't you try putting maybe three or four slides together for your talk and use that? And my evaluations went up dramatically. Not dramatically. I went I went, I went from a four one four two to a four seven four eight just by putting a few slides in.
0: Well, uh, Peter, you've had some adjunct faculty experience. (laughs) Yes. Um, You know, I teach a lot of online online classes, but I teach several on a regular basis live classes. And I go in the first night and say, now, folks, we're going to do this a little different. I'm not going to use PowerPoints. I've got a few simple handouts I'll give you along the way. And I say, you know, would that be all right? And what I find is, they find it so refreshing because they have just had people get book PowerPoints and just kill them off. And again, it's that facilitation. So let's tell a story. Let's hear experience. And with adult learners, let's hear your story. Right. Let's hear your experience. And they're teaching again through the story. Hey, Peter, think about it. how many of us growing up, our moms, our dads, our grandparents, our aunts, our uncles, told us stories to teach us life lessons oh, yeah. and we still retain some of those today. Yeah, That's where it's
1: at. You, you, That's really where it's at. Yeah. You're spot on yeah. with that. We, we, we need to, yeah. we need to get, and it is, we, we become so linear, so data driven anymore that it, it's become very numbing and the ability to, and, and when I talk about storytelling, it's, there's so much to it because one, you have to be comp- one, First, you have to be comfortable from an audience, and, yeah. and two, you, you have to be confident that you understand the material and that you're well hearsed, you're well-practiced, you've you've gotten past that fear of public speaking. You've got all the, and, and w- once you get past that, because now you've created a conversation versus a presentation, then you can bake in that story, and that audience will remember it much more so than if if, if your body language is, is is not congruent with what with the words that are coming out, your, your audience is immediately going to just disconnect from you. Yes.
0: Peter, uh, when I teach presentation skills classes for the workplace here, one of the emphasis I always put on about the value of stories is we talk about are our people in our audiences, are they going to be spectators or are they going to be participants? And I heard that phrase several years ago in this context, it talked about people that were going to, professional football games, or even your beloved Ohio state football games, you know, and during the game, you have 11 players on offense on the field, 11 on defense. So you've got 22 players on the field who desperately need some rest and you have 50,000 people in the stands or maybe more, but they desperately need exercise. And that's that idea of the audience. Are they going to be participants Hmm. or are they going to be spectators? And stories let people be participants. Interaction lets people be participants, not just staring at you, blah 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 the whole time.
1: You just told me a story about that and used it very well on on using the analogy of a football game. Exactly. I, I haven't and I haven't heard that put like you like you just did, and and, and I love that. That's that's excellent.
0: See, analogies, great way to tell a story without really telling much of a story. But it's a great way to get people thinking, gets them involved, gets them to be a part. And that's when people say, you're done with this class already? Man, it like we just started. Because they were a participant and not just watching the clock. That's it. That's really
1: it. That's, that's it. And, yeah. and, and, and I just, uh, last month I was in South Carolina with the South Carolina Association, Put I did a uh, a program discussion leader academy. I, I trained the trainer, and we did it two and a half days. And we had participants, and they were used to doing not, not so much facilitation, just and. At the end of the program, they were, they were just astounded. They, they their presentation skills within two and a half days changed dramatically. They got it. We talked yeah. about storytelling and, and and just body language and stuff, and it, it was just like night and day. And the the challenge I left them with is you got to keep this in front of you. You got to keep practicing. You just can't do it here and then you leave. Go back to the same way you've been doing it. Then it's it was a waste of your time and mine.
0: Exactly right, but when people will try it and take a step in that direction, uh, uh, Peter, I mean, folks all of a sudden, not just do the participants in the audience get there, but I've seen people that just picked up this idea and said, I'll try it, and they saw how it worked, and all of a sudden they said, it is so much more fun presenting, and guess what? The audience senses us when we are that way. They sense You know, Carnegie always talked about, tell something that you're familiar with. Tell something that you know about, that you live, that you've experienced, and relive it and go through the experience. He said, you do that, you'll draw a crowd of people to you. And that's what we're encouraging people to do with the story right
1: there. Exactly. Man, this has been so much fun, Merle. I, I just, I, you know what? You know, we could probably talk for two hours on, on this topic. Uh, but, but you know what? Maybe we'll have a follow up uh, on this conversation after my, after my book is published and you've had a chance to read it. Uh, we'll bring, but we'll come back and have a conversation and you can give me a critique and we can, we can have a discussion along those lines and then bring in something new that, that, that you've learned because you're just a wealth of knowledge, my friend.
0: Well, I believe that the continue to learn is the only way to go. Uh, I mean, that not how many degrees you have or how old you are in life. If we don't have that curiosity, that hunger to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, let's learn a little bit more. That's it. And good for you, Peter, to take on a, a group of people that just—they're good, good people. They just haven't—they they just haven't given much thought to could I present a different way and you're working to try to encourage that and to help that good for you
1: i i appreciate that and 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 the the book will more or less i think be uh slanted more towards the accounting profession because it's what I'm accustomed to. But it, I, I think if those uh, who are not in the accounting profession, who are engineering and architect or, or anybody pick up and read it, I, I, they'll get a sense of it. They'll get a sense of understanding of, of the power of storytelling and things that you need to, to do. And it's not it's not accounting jargon driven. There's just a lot of examples. A lot of my examples come from what I've witnessed over the last 20 some odd years in the accounting profession and, and things that I've done in, in my presentation Presentations and and things that I've I've, I've thought about and and, and attempted, and and, um, so I think it's a book that anybody could pick up and read and and use. But I think it it is a little bit slated more towards the accounting profession.
0: Well, Peter, this is probably the, the, the final thing I'd have to say. Is I oftentimes noticed in presentations, we tend to do what we've seen done before. It's safe. It's comfortable. And yet there's something in all of us, I believe, that once we start hearing these ideas says, you know, maybe it could be different. Right. And I have found that when we're willing to step out and be a bit daring, try something different. I always told my kids, don't be like everybody else when they give us a presentation. Don't do it. Presentations are a dime a dozen. Do something with a, with a prop. Do something different. Do something with a story that captures attention. And if somebody is daring enough to try it, they'd be amazed of the step in the right direction that they're going. It's worth their while.
1: Exactly. It's it's just taking, as we say in the improv world, follow the fear. Yeah, there it is. don't, Don't back away from it. Follow the fear because it is into the unknown. But, you know, we say get outside your comfort zone. That's another way of just saying follow your fear. Get outside your comfort zone, try it. You know what? If it doesn't work, then assess it, rework it, try it again. Eventually it will, or you'll come up with another idea.
0: It's worth breaking out of the mold. Yes, sir. Well,
1: well I, I appreciate, I, I know you're a busy man. I, I appreciate you taking the time. I, I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I, 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 I'm I, walking away a, a richer person today because I I didn't know the, this information, the, the dissertation stuff, and what you've shared um I, I, just, I, like, I got goosebumps, my friend. You've, you gave me goosebumps today.
0: Well, it has been, it's been my pleasure, and it's been a privilege, uh, Peter, because we just want to help other people say, let's make it better. Let's make it better for ourselves and for our organizations. That's where it's at.
1: Exactly. And, and, and I appreciate everything, and I look forward to our next conversation.
0: That's a winner. All right. Thanks so much.
1: I would like to thank Merle again for sharing his knowledge and thoughts on ways that intentional storytelling can be applied in today's business world. Now in episode 86, I interviewed Keith Harmeyer, who's an author, speaker, innovative thinking catalyst, and an occasional opera singer. Keith and his business partner, Michael Riggi, authored the book, Smartstorming, the game changing process for generating bigger, better ideas. Well, thank you again for listening, and always remember to use the principles of improvisation to help you better connect and communicate with those in your organization and in your life.